Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, first-time biographer and West Virginia University history professor, Sheena Harris. She talks about her book, Margaret Murray Washington, The Life and Times of a Career Clubwoman. It was published by the University of Tennessee Press in February 2021. Margaret Washington was the wife of the legendary leader and Tuskegee University founder, Booker T. Washington. She was also a powerful mover and shaker in the Black women's club movement of the early 20th century. Author Sheena Harris was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. Well, Dr. Sheena Harris, it's really good to meet you, and I really enjoyed your book. And Thank so I guess I would start with the question who was Margaret Murray Washington? I think she's a complex figure. I would say that she had this public persona, but she also was very human. Oftentimes when we think of these people who um, have very high statuses within the community or on campus, we forget that they're human. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that she's this complex figure that was able to move mountains with the resources that she had and where she was. What attracted you to her story? Yeah, it's so funny. I think when I first was introduced to Margaret, I was reading an article by the late Jacqueline Ann Rouse on Out of the Shadow of Tuskegee. And in the article, she kept saying, Mrs. Booker T. Washington. And at some points, it would be Mrs. Booker T. Washington, and then Olivia, Mrs. Booker T. Washington, and Fanny. And at this time, I had no idea that Booker T. Washington had three wives. And so when I saw this, it was like, wait, is his wife named Fanny, Olivia, Margaret, Murray Washington? And so that was sort of my introduction into, I really want to know who this woman is behind this man that we know so much about. Um, At that particular time, my advisor did research on Booker T. Washington's lieutenants and then also Booker T. Washington. And so it was sort of like that natural curiosity on where are the women and what are the women doing and what are their voices? And, And then I had this amazing opportunity to go to Tuskegee as well. And I think that that just allowed me to sort of see, because I think as historians, it's one thing to think about where these people were and the soil that they had to walk on and the challenges that they had to face. But I think it's unique to be able to walk the sand and walk the dirt that they walked and go into the buildings that they caught home. And I think I was just, I was won over by that time. Can you explain Booker T. Washington's role in the United States in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Massive. And I get into so many debates on Booker T. Washington, um, but massive. And I think in similar ways that we often put women within boxes 
of she has to be married and have children and perform in certain entities. I think oftentimes Washington's legacy is sometimes placed inside of a box as well and oftentimes thought of as an accommodationist. And so I think one of the things that he was able to do uniquely is expand how we think about not just education, but Black education within the United States and business and self-fulfillment and these ideas of just being able to do what it is that you need to do to survive despite what's happening outside. And so I think it's a very interesting file to study, even within this particular time period where there's so much turmoil that's still going on about race in America and the struggles of Black folk within America. And I think Washington really was important in creating this space where Black folk not only can go and get educated, but I think that he was very intentional about who was educating the masses as well at that particular time period. So I would say who Booker T. Washington was, was one of the most premier leaders of the 19th, late 19th and 20th century, especially once you have the death of Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. And that happens in 1895, 1895. and coincides with exactly. Washington's rise. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was almost divine, if you will, his training at that particular time, but also the niche that he went into of, I'm not going to leave the South. And at this particular time, you have a number of folk who are leaving the sharecropping farms and who are leaving these relics that remind them of this institution of slavery. And he's basically like, listen, we can take these things that were used against us and we can use them to help to build up our own and build our own farming and and things of that sort. And so I think it's revolutionary in many ways. Booker T. Washington was married three times. But in 1895, Margaret Murray Washington has been married to him for a few years already. Yes. And the role she plays in the building of Tuskegee. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And and I actually want to build it on this idea that Booker T. Washington, he's coming of age and coming into this public spotlight arena in 1895 shortly after the death of Frederick Douglass, him and Margaret, they're marrying in 1892. But even before his marriage to Margaret, he's married to Olivia Davidson, who he even quotes himself as being the co-founder of Tuskegee University, or what becomes Tuskegee University. And at this particular time, she's able to introduce him to these philanthropists that are in the North. And Margaret comes shortly after Olivia passes away in 1889. And so before he becomes this very, very bigger than life, iconic type of figure, Margaret is now coming sort of into the shadow of how can I find my place within this very male structured society and system and help to build up what Washington is attempting to do primarily from this sort of male perspective, but what can I do in terms of what the women are doing and what the children are doing? And you find her really soaring in that particular realm and helping him to do what he's able to do for men better, right? And helping him to see this holistic component of this is what women are talking about, right? This is how women are building these communities as well, side by side. At one point in the book, I was talking about how Margaret is helping him write 
the speech that he gives at the Atlantic Exposition. And he's going through this speech with Margaret, who often you would think, well, why isn't he using Emmett Scott? Or why isn't he using these male figures within his life? But here you have Margaret, who no one knows at this particular time, but who's able to really help this Washington that we come to know. Um, and she's pushing him at every level. And so I think that that is a dynamic moment that she's able to really shine in terms of who she is, but also able to push him into realms that she can't go as a woman, um, but that she's able to enter into along with him with his name as well. Can you talk a little bit about where she came from and that for her to be an advisor, even to her husband, because a lot of husbands at that time probably did not seek out the advice from their wives, mm -hmm. but Booker T. Washington is doing that. Mm -hmm. But if you think about where she was 15 years earlier, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily where you would expect her to be. Exactly. And so one of the things that I was able to see over and over is the influence that she had that was really in sort of like the shadows of most things. So the influence that her mother has on her. And so you kind of see this very strong and not a pushover type of personality that's being developed. And even for the fact that her mother trusts her black daughter to leave her and to travel with white abolitionists at this particular time period to an entirely different state and for her to be okay and for her to have trusted that she would be okay. I think it really speaks to her character at that time period, but also her strong will. And so here you have her moving into this area and while she's in Nashville and at Fisk, she's in the community. So she's not just how you think about a typical student where you go to school and you go home. And if you have to work, you may work a small job. She's literally taking eight years to finish a three to four year degree, but she's also working in the homes for professors. So she's getting sort of this close access that many first generational students don't get today. And she's having this up close and personal interactions with these folk on campus, black and white. And the other thing that she's doing is she's in the communities. So she's working alongside W.E.B. Du Bois while she's still in Nashville at this time and helping to write about what is the state of Black folk right now? Like, What is this double consciousness that Du Bois is really going to um, be able to develop throughout his career? What does it mean to, to build up these schools and really going into these communities and not just writing about it, but then coming and telling Nashville for what they need and then being able to bring that back. And so she was doing this behind the scenes work prior to meeting Booker T. Washington. And so I don't think it was really by accident that he understands her depth of knowledge that she's bringing not only to the Institute, but to him as well. And also they don't meet while they're courting. <laughs> they meet because he hires her. Mm -hmm. She had an official position at Tuskegee, so she's not doing this as an auxiliary. Can you talk about that role? Because she had it for a long time. Exactly. And Margaret, she's going to start Fisk University at that particular time period in 1881. And then she's graduating in 1889. And as many people who are going on the job market before that graduation date, she's sending out letters and she's sending out these requests to work at these institutions. And oftentimes she's sending them through mails. 
And so it's not just directly from her to Washington, it's from her to someone who she knows to Washington and often through this sort of male avenue that she's using. Washington never responds to her and she doesn't know why he's not responding. But at that particular time, his second wife just passed away and they just had their newborn son and he's doing this extensive traveling. And so when Washington comes to Fisk, as he's been doing a few years, even before her graduation, but they still never meet, he's going to attempt to recruit folks at the graduation. And Margaret, they end up being at the same table boldly. And I say boldly because I think it shows it's an audaciousness to say, hey, principal, I sent a letter to you. I know you got this letter. I want to work at Tuskegee, although I already have a position somewhere else. And so she takes this very bold approach and he hires her. And when she gets there, she initially starts as an English instructor. And I think one thing about Washington is that he's able to recognize talent. And I think he's able to recognize leadership. And so as soon as she gets in, only a few months later, he makes, literally makes her the lady principal. And so I think that also speaks to the type of respect that he has for her, but also her work ethic and how it's showing through very quickly within the time that she's on campus in 1889 to 1891 when she becomes lady principal. After that, it's history because they pretty much are behind the scenes courting in this late 19th century type of courting type of way where they're sending letters, but it's not official yet. And he's still talking to other people. And and so it's our pre-social media type of dating scenario. And it's a quick courtship as well. One of the terms you use that I really like when you're describing what Margaret is trying to convey to her her charges is you use the phrase uh, survivalist strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think you used it in the context of explaining why respectability was so important. She felt it was important for her to convey to the young women at mm-hmm. Tuskegee. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that and Absolutely. her style? Oftentimes a, a question that I get asked of Margaret is, did she believe in respectability? And one of the things that I found is that At this time, there were certain things at play that Margaret really was about not just surviving so that you could live the next day, which was one component of the survival, but also surviving so that you could be able to be self-sufficient. And racial uplift and these approaches that she's taking at this particular time is, how can I equip these girls that I'm training to be able to go into this world and not just find a husband, but to be able to be wage earners and not just wage earners in the sense of most Black women have to work, but wage earners also in this way of how do you help your husband purchase this home? How do you um, use the finances that you're saving to be able to grow your own farm or to be able to do these things that are not just going to help you to survive in this day, but that's going to equip you to have generational survival methods, despite the fact that terror is happening all around you. And so she was very, very strategic in the way that she talked about or taught the survival type of strategies that worked, especially within the South. Now, she uses her work at Tuskegee 
as a platform to move within the Black Women's Club movement. Can you talk about why that is more than Ladies Who Lunch and, <laughs> and the important role that those clubs were playing? Um, I think in the same vein of what she's doing on campus, she understands that so many people don't have access to this campus life. There are so many people that probably will never have a college degree, but how do we go into the community? And so with that, it's sort of this, this double edge because on one hand, the Tuskegee Women's Club was exclusive. You had to work on campus. You had to be a wife of someone who worked on campus. It really served in a way like a fraternity or sorority type of organization where they would ask you to join and then you would go through this process and then you would be inducted into it. But then being able to say, we can't just use our talents and our resources and our knowledge base to think about tea, even though they had tea, right? But if we're having tea, we need to also be thinking about how are we going to save our children? How are we going to be able to go into these prisons and pull our children out of those prisons and show them what a playground is? Show them what a book is that has children in it. Show them what a doll is that looks like them. There's this story that I often share where Margaret has these dolls and these children, they're playing with these dolls and they're all white dolls. And so you look at it and you're like, but the kids have dolls, right? So be happy. And Margaret is like, no, because what I'm getting are adults who don't understand the importance of race consciousness. I'm getting um, 20 and 25 year olds who don't think that these ideas about Black beauty is important. And so we have to teach it early. And so she really took these things to heart and she got some tar and put it on one of the dolls and, and presented it to Washington. And he was like, this is hideous. No, like do not move forward with this. And one of the true things about Margaret's character is that when she is convicted on something, she's going to do it. And so you see her moving forward with the black dolls with tar on their faces until they find better ways of coloring the dolls' faces. But I think that it, it speaks to not just that one incident, but I think it speaks to how she approached the race problem within the South, within Tuskegee, and how other folks around the state are seeing what she's doing at Tuskegee and saying, we need to model this. Like, how do we model this? Because we're, we're stronger in numbers. And how does she do that? She pretty soon moves into the National Black Women's Club movement. She basically is leveraging all of the things that she has. And so one of the things that she's leveraging is her education because she understands the way the academy works. And so she's leveraging that. She's leveraging the fact that she's married to Booker T. Washington. She's leveraging the fact that if you look at Tuskegee in the rural South, you think, why would something there work? And she's leveraging the fact that, listen, this is an empty canvas and we can do with it what we will. And so one of the things in terms of the institution of Tuskegee is land. There is so much land that the Institute actually is going to own and so much land around the Institute. And so the ways that she's able to push against 
systems or territories that other folk within other areas may not necessarily be able to do because of the close and limited confines that Black folk are placed within, she has more space to be able to do that. And so the way that she's able to um, start the different components within the club, the way that she's able to go around and not just say, um, Booker T. Washington, I know that we're middle class and a lot of that is in name only, but can you support my venture, right? She does that, but she says things in the sense of, I have $5, can you match this $5? And then she goes to women in the community who are philanthropists in the sense of, they don't have all of this money, but now that they've understanding this ability to grow their own food, to be able to make their own clothes, now she's able to pull in those resources. And one thing that she finds is that people want to be a part of things that are making not just them better, but their communities better. And so she leverages that and she gets the women together and she basically says, this is what we've been able to do with the resources that we have. And she does this and then she'll take that to the government and say, this is what we've been able to do. Now we need your help to be able to take it further. And so I think that's one of the very unique things about her um, life and career is that she's willing to go in and put in the work, but she's also very talented in getting other people to buy in it as well. And so I don't think it was by accident that she's elected the first woman of the first national organization um, at that particular time period, even though she's in small Tuskegee Institute, Alabama. You say the name of that organization. It's the African-American National Organization okay. of Women. And so the NFAAW. Mm-hmm. And so once she becomes the president of that organization, I think that her name and what she was able to do just skyrockets. I mean, she's able to leverage that and the Tuskegee Women's Club is going to remain the model that people are using to build out these other clubs within smaller areas than larger areas as well. I thought it was interesting because some of the things that she seemed to do, I wondered if Booker T. Washington followed her when he started the National Negro Business League because the mother's meetings, those chapters, she was doing that. Absolutely. Several years before the NNBL. Absolutely. There's nowhere that says directly where he's like, I was influenced by. Whereas in Margaret's writing, you'll see, I attended this and I was influenced by this. But I would argue that many of his organizations that he's going to come to be part of, that Margaret was a staunch believer and promoter of those things within her women's clubs. Mm -hmm. And even though Washington is never a member or he doesn't attend these meetings that she's having with these women, he's influenced by it. Right. And you see him talking about this is what the women are doing or the fact that the Oregon for the National Association of Colored Women is being produced at Tuskegee. And so here he is in the neck of it. Um, So absolutely, I would say that direct correlation of what she's doing and what he grows to do. Can you talk about your sources? What were the the treasure troves and what were the things that you wish you had available? I think one of the, the biggest things was the fact that Margaret wrote and that they were archived was 
a treasure trove in that sense. Um, and not in the traditional diaries that you find in Alison Parker's recent book on Mary Church Terrell, where she's writing about, I feel this way to herself, but you do find these intimate letters that she's writing to Washington in the sense of, I feel like I'm not loved because you didn't send me a letter quick enough. Or you see this sort of wittiness within the letters. And I think that that in itself was just a goldmine because if you go back and you think about um, Booker T. Washington's first wife, who's also born enslaved, she's born in West Virginia, but there's so little that is written about her and even less that she's actually writing that's being archived. And in the same token, if you look at Olivia Davidson, who is the co-founder and who really helps Tuskegee at its lowest, lowest points to be able to connect with wealth within the North, she writes so little that is actually preserved. And so I think that having Margaret's actual words in the archives and the fact that she lived not a long time, but she's living into the 20th century. I think that that really was the goldmine of it all. And the fact that Booker T. Washington's secretary, Emmett Scott, is just a very, very good organizer and archivist in many ways, even though that wasn't his title. He was very good at preserving the writings of both of the Washingtons. What things do you wish you had available? Oh, man. <laughs> so many things. You know, once you finish something, it's like, oh, I would have added that. I should have added that. I should have done that. There was one writing that I did not find until after the last set of edits had been sent to the publisher. And it was in my archives. And when I read it, I just lumped it. You know how you're reading these archival sources and you're creating your archives at home. I placed it inside of the archives where she was going to speak to women for the NACW. And I highlighted what she said, but it was very similar to what she had said somewhere else. And I ended up using the other document. And then for some reason, I was like, well, just go back through your old documents and just read through them. And I end up finding this document where she's writing a letter to Emmett Scott. And in the letter, she literally is giving detailed account of her step-by-step -step travels into the Midwest. And she's talking about these interactions with white women and with white men that I just felt like was a gold mine. But I'm like, okay, I'll just add it into this next <laughs> article or project that I work on. But it's almost like beating yourself up for a moment. <laughs> I, I understand. Well, you've answered a lot of questions with the resources you had available. And I really, really enjoyed reading the book. Thank you. It, I know it's going to enlighten people to not just Margaret Murray Washington's life, but there's a whole network of Black women that she's a part of. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to add in terms of discussing the book? I would say that biography is hard. Um, I think one of the things that I learned while doing it is that it really forces you to ask the questions of yourself. And also biography on Black women at the end of the 19th century is so much more difficult because of those silent areas of women just weren't talking or writing and it wasn't being preserved. And so how do you go outside of that? And so I'm so appreciative of Margaret being able to lay those foundations, but also to be able to keep many of those records so that we could come back to them and analyze them and 
being able to tap into that human component of people that we think of as icons. So I'm very, very appreciative. And I hope that anyone who reads the book is able to also see that humanity and to see that it doesn't take much to be able to institute change. That was author and history professor Sheena Harris speaking with bio member Kevin Magruder about her book, Margaret Murray Washington, The Life and Times of a Career Club Woman published by the University of Tennessee Press in February 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on January 21st of this year. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.